All right. Trust your hearts encouraged by gathering with the people of God. Uh, we gather here not because it's just a tradition, right? Not because we have nothing better to do on Sunday mornings. You know, not because we're bored and uh, we just want to fill our schedules with something else. I hope you don't gather here this morning because it's what you've done for 10, 20, 30, 50 years. And so if you don't go to church, you feel guilty. Right? I hope that you're here because you know that you need the Savior, you need the truth of God's Word, you need grace. God's given you the ability through His Spirit to encourage other people in the body, right? And so we gather, not just to receive from the Lord, but eager to give to others. And so we are excited for what God already has done, even through the singing of truth. I hope fellowship that's already happened between you and other believers and that will happen when this service finishes. Uh, but it is good to gather with God's people. Uh, and I hope that's your heart this morning. And I know that as we gather, we are just so varied this morning. Some of us have had just the best morning of our lives and we're just delighted to be here and others, um, not so much, right? Um, it was just a work to get out of the house this morning and everything was falling apart and, you know, you just felt miserable getting out of bed and it was just like everything in life was fighting. It's like, ah, oh, just stay this morning, don't go, right? Uh, whatever, whatever you're thinking this morning, whatever your heart's set, it's good to be here. It's good to turn our attention to God and his word uh, because we need him. We desperately need him. Uh, we have been in Psalm 119 now for the last uh, month or so. And Psalm 119 is like, um, it treats the word of God like a diamond. A diamond that you might put on a pedestal and you continue to spin, you know, under, under, black, under white light on a black cloth. Anybody ever, ever done that? And you just watch it reflect and refract the light rays and you keep turning and it's like, wow, that's so cool. Um, you know, I, I'm, I kind of, that kind of fascinates me. And so I was reading an article a few weeks ago about one of the larger diamonds in the world just sold for $78 million or something ridiculous like that, you know. And of course they have those awesome pictures, right, of the diamond being turned and light coming through. And they don't put it in a dark room, right? They, they put it against a black cloth and then they shine bright light into it, right? And that's what makes it shine. And, and that's what David is doing with the word of God. He's, he's saying the word of God is awesome, and he continues to turn it before our eyes and turn it. And every week we come to it, it's like, wow, wow. The word never gets old. It never grows tired. Psalm 119 pushes the child of God to know God through the word. You'll see behind me the, the, the kind of the overall title, knowing, delighting, transforming. The word pushes us to know God. And then it pushes us from knowing to delighting in him, right? Because he is that which is infinitely delightful. There's nothing more wonderful than God. And so as we know him, we delight in him because to know him is to delight in him. And you can't truly know him without delighting in him. You might have information, but that's not knowing him. If you know him, you will delight in him. And then delighting leads to being transformed in the image of Jesus through the word of God. So you know him, you delight in him, and you're transformed in the image of the Savior. Do, do we get it yet? The word of God is central to genuine Christian faith and central to genuine Christian practice. Without this book, we can't know God. Without this book, we can't walk with God. And any attempt is futile. It's absolutely worthless. And it leads us nowhere and into utter hopelessness and ruin. Not only is Psalm 119 all these other things, but it also addresses every emotion of the human existence. 
That's one of the reasons the Psalms is so loved, isn't it? It's when, when we are struggling and weighted down, where do Christians throughout the centuries go? They go to Psalms. And they go to, and pick your favorite. You might have one that you go to in your times of lowness, but it's, it's where you go. You typically don't go to Hosea, <laughs> where God is pronouncing judgment on the earth for their rebellion. Even though we need Hosea, right? But we go to the Psalms because God meets us there. Or maybe you're just rejoicing. Where do you go? You go to the Psalms. And you're like, man. I sing with loud shouts. I dance before the Lord. My heart's overjoyed in him. The Psalms addresses all these various human emotions that we encounter in life. And this morning, the section in Psalm 119 we're in is going to meet us in our deepest and greatest need. God is going to, through his word, meet us right where we hit our low. And just say, you know what, when, when here is what low looks like, when here's where you're just feeling down and out and broken by this world and broken by everything around you, there's God. And we can turn to him. And so this morning, that's what Psalm 119, 25 to 32 is going to push us towards this morning. Let's read it again. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your laws. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. The idea that I hope sticks between your ears and my ears this morning is this. When sorrow clings to you, cling to the God of the word by grace. So if we come away with anything this morning, I want us to come away with that. When sorrow clings to you, cling to the God of the word by grace. You'll notice in this text that we can't control the sorrow that clings to us, but we can control who we cling to. That's the point. We can't control the circumstances, but we can control clinging to the God of the scriptures by grace. So let's dive into this passage and see what God has for us this morning. The first thing we see is there is the agony of suffering is devastating. The agony of suffering is devastating. Look at verse 25, the very first line. My soul clings to the dust. In verse 28, first line, my soul melts away for sorrow. In the Hebrew mind, the idea of soul was the very root of life itself. It was the seat of all life. So the very essence of my being clings to the dust. The agony of suffering is devastating. I want to step back and and just talk for a moment. Because we live in a fallen world, life is hard. You tracking with me? Because we live in a fallen world, life is hard. You know, at the core of our being, we want heaven now and heaven later, don't we? I mean, isn't that what we pray for? We pray for heaven on earth and we want heaven then. We want everything on earth to be awesome and then we want to die and it to be awesomer. So we want heaven now and heaven later. Not only that, at the core of our being, you know what we also want? We really want the prosperity gospel to be true. Don't we? If you don't know the prosperity gospel, it essentially says, come to God, follow Jesus, and your life gets happy. 
But isn't that what we want? I mean, we know it's not in the scriptures, but isn't that, I mean, just listen to Christians pray. Isn't that what we want? We want easy, wonderful, happy now. And, and, and that's not reality. And I'd be lying to you this morning to say, hey, everybody, follow Jesus. Your life will be happy circumstantially. All your problems will go away because you became a Christian. And some of you are sitting there like, Pastor Justin, that is, n- that is not the way to build a church. <laughs> what? I mean, come on, isn't that? We want to be positive and encouraging, and, but we need to be honest and truthful. And we cannot believe the lie or even buy into it for a moment that when we turn to God, everything gets easy. We can believe by faith that when we turn to him, everything gets better. We can believe that when we turn to him, we can find hope through our suffering. We can believe from the scripture that we turn to him and now we have a hope not only for today, but for the future. We can turn to him and know that I'm forgiven of all my transgressions. I don't have to suffer under the condemnation of myself or others because Jesus suffered for me. So there is hope, but it's not how it's so often portrayed. We live in a fallen world and life is hard. The truth is that, that the effects of sin are everywhere. The effects of our own choices and the effects of other people's choices. We live in a world that's riddled with disease, natural disaster, situational evil, moral evil, ethical evil, and you could continue on with evil after evil after evil, right? We were just talking with some ladies on Friday night at our home and it came up like, what do we do with just all the devastation in the world? You can be having a great day and just turn on the news. And you go from a great day to just depressed. Somebody else blew up somebody. Some other country is in a drought and millions of people are, are on the brink of starvation. You know, somebody, some other evil person did something evil to somebody else. And you're just like, okay, this is, this is a mess. We try to deny it. We try to spruce it up. We try to make it look pretty. But at the end of the day, we all know that we're in a fallen world and the effects of that fallenness are everywhere. And you know what's interesting is we can't explain it. We try, we try to figure it out, but we're a lot like the disciples in John 9. Remember the man born blind at the gate of the temple, and the disciples said, Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Him or his parents? They're trying to answer the question of suffering right? They're trying to figure out life is hard. This guy's blind. Whose fault is it? And we love finding fault, don't we? Let's blame this person, that person, somebody else. We want to blame somebody for why things are the way they are. What was Jesus's response? Neither. It was that God might be glorified. And at that point, our little small brains don't understand because we're just like, really God? This man might've been 40, 50 years old and he had 40 or 50 years of blind begging at the gate of the temple that you would be glorified and that's enough, right? That God would be glorified because on that day, that man not only came to physical sight but spiritual sight and he proclaimed the greatness of Jesus to all who would hear him that he had been healed, right? God was glorified. Brothers and sisters, we live in a fallen world. And sometimes it's not even our sin or somebody else's. It's just the effects of a fallen world. In Genesis 1, God said his creation was very good. But that very good creation did not include sin or the effects of it. By the time you get to Genesis 3, creation is cursed. 
all of creation is cursed. And so now it's like, oh Lord, your world is still good, but sometimes it's hard to see it, right? God is good, amen? God is good, but sometimes what we actually see is hard to see the goodness because we live in a fallen world. Well, let's look at the text and see how the the psalmist helps us. First, he says, my soul clings to the dust. I think here we see the trials of life are straight up humbling. The The trials of life are humbling. The idea for a Hebrew man to be clinging to the dust was a position of humility. It was, I am bowed low. There's no dignity here. There's no self-respect here. It is prostrate on my face, holding on to the dirt kind of brokenness. The trials of life are humbling. And you know what? We love to be in control, don't we? We love to have the appearance of everything being picture perfect. We love everybody thinking that we're successful and we're happy and that we have the the perfect picture of happiness, whatever that is for you. Maybe for you, it's the career and it's just, Maybe it's the family. You just, your family needs to be a picture perfect family and then you're happy. You're, for you, it needs to be just a, 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 uh, an appearance, a physical appearance. So as long as you look beautiful, you're happy. We love to be in control. We love the appearances of happiness. But the reality is none of us have it all together. Isn't, isn't that what the gospel says? <laughs> you're broken, you need a savior. Like we say as Christians, we believe the gospel, but we functionally deny it all the time, don't we? We say we believe that we're broken in need of a savior, but then we try to live as though we have it all together. We try to live as though everybody else just sees the happy, pretty parts. Brothers and sisters, do not deny the gospel. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to say, I don't have it all together, but my God does. I don't have all the answers, but thankfully I have a savior who died in my place. We are broken and we hate to admit it. And here the psalmist is broken. He has been brought low by a trial. We don't know the nature of it. It could have been his own sin. We've been there, right? Embarrassed by the effects of our own sin. We're just like, yep, I'm an idiot. And I know it. And I don't want anybody else to find out, right? Because we're just brought low by our own sin. But maybe it's just the shame of being sinned against. Maybe you've been sinned against. And so you just, you have this kind of low grade guilt and shame. You're brought low by somebody else's sin, right? We live in a fallen world. Ever been sinned against? Right? We've all been sinned against to varying degrees. And the shame of being brought low and being sinned against. And maybe we just simply don't like talking about it, but we've been brought low by physical, emotional, financial, spiritual, relational problems and we're just brought low and so we we act as though it's all okay but inside we are a mess the the trials of life humble us not only do they humble us verse 28 my soul melts away for sorrow the trials of life are debilitating they're, they just, not only they bring us low, but they debilitate us. This melting away, the best we can understand this Hebrew word is the idea of I, I, I melt into a puddle of tears. I weep until I literally cannot weep anymore. That's what he's saying here. I am debilitated by my trials. We're humbled, we're brought to the point of total weariness, total inability. It's like you just, you get to where I can't, I don't even know which way's up anymore. I'm broken by my trials made weary by trials? 
I'm thankful that God doesn't reveal to me all the trials of life in one lump sum because I'd commit suicide. And so would you. God slowly brings trials. Sometimes you feel like, God, they could come a little slower. But he brings trials, right? He brings trials. And in those trials, we're brought low. And you know what? We're in good company. Just read your Bible. You know what I love about the scriptures? And one of the things, reasons I, I believe this book is from God, not only does it say it, but it's full of stories of failure. Every other religious book in the world, literally in the world, puts out this idea of perfect success. Perfect happiness. Follow our faith system and it'll look like this. And you pick there whatever version of scriptures and there's some idyllic perfection. And you open your Bible and it's full of brokenness. It's full of sinners who need a perfect God. This is not a humanly inspired or humanly written book because we would never include these stories. We just, we simply wouldn't. We would hide them, right? We'd shove them down. We would ignore the fact that they exist. And you read your Bible and you're like, wow, that person's broken. That person's broken. I one time counted up all the significant Bible characters that I could think of that we didn't have explicit mention of their failure. I came up with five or six. Try it. I'm not talking about a genealogy. I'm talking about somebody that actually has, you know, like a few, pa- few uh, chapters about them. It's all, they're all failures. Why? Because the whole point of scripture is to show that failures need a savior. Failures need a redeemer. And so we identify with them. And so we, we could look at David. I mean, there were explicit, explicit statements in First Samuel of David being weary. Weary. His own son wanting to kill him for years. And him running from his son. I mean, our families have problems, but that's pretty serious, right? His son is, is literally raising up armies to kill his father. And, and David doesn't turn to kill his son, but he flees, right? He doesn't go after his child. He's wearied by the trials of life. And we resonate with this. The real issue is not, is life hard? That's not the issue. The reality is life is hard. And I'm not gonna lie here this morning and then say if you follow the God of the Bible, life gets easy. But here is the truth and here is the main issue of this passage. When life gets hard, where do you turn? That's the point of Psalm 119, 25 to 32. When life gets hard, where do you go? You see, we all turn to something. Do you know that? You turn to something. We're good at drowning our sorrows in TV. Just, just turn on something, whatever your vice is, and watch it. Binge on Netflix until you fall asleep in bed and you drown your sorrows. And the reason I went there is because we love to pick on, you know, bigger sins. You know, like, well, that guy, he's an alcoholic. I'm not one of those. Really, brothers and sisters, don't put one sin above or below yours. We all turn to something, don't we? And the point of this is that there is only true comfort, true joy, true satisfaction, and true healing found in one place. And it's the grace of God through the person of God revealed in the word of God. That's it. That's it. There is no other place to go. And until we believe that and live that, we will go to other places. Because life isn't going to get better until we're with Jesus. And so we're going to go somewhere. We're going to fight tooth and nail to find rest and comfort and happiness and it hasn't changed in four, three and a half thousand years since this passage was written. 
you're going to go somewhere, where do you go? So here we see the first part of our statement this morning, sorrow clings to you. And as I was preparing this week, I was heavy hearted, to be honest, because I don't know your sorrows, but I know you have them. Some of you have talked to me and we've, we've shared our life struggles, but I just know that if there's 150 people in this room, guess what? There are thousands of sorrows. Some of them are, are little in comparison and others are life dominating, life consuming. You never go more than a few hours without thinking about it. It's a sorrow that weighs on your soul and you just can't shake it and you live in sorrow. And so this morning it was just pleading with God to minister to those in sorrow that we would come away from this morning and say, oh Lord, that's me. There's sorrow that's heavy on my heart. The weight is, the, 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 the sorrow clings to me. It's like a weight around my neck that I can't lay off. But thankfully God's word doesn't leave us there, right? So he identifies in our sorrow, but then he, he shows us where to turn. So let's look at that together. That's our second point this morning. The blessings of the word fuel faith. So when sorrow brings you low, when you're devastated by the suffering of life, there's the blessings of the word, the blessings from the word fuel faith. The essence of faith is simply this, taking God at his word. That's it. Taking God at his word. If there's no word of God, there is no faith in God. If we don't have this book, we can't believe, period. You can't know God apart from this book. And if there's no knowledge of God through this book, there is no faith. We have to know God through this book. That's the essence of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is what? Do you know it? The evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things unseen, we believe, and I love what Hebrews, 1, Hebrews 11 goes on to say, right? For by it, this book, we know that everything was created by God. How did the author of Hebrews know that? This book. He believed it by faith. He, he believed by faith that God did what he said he did and is who he says he is. The essence of faith is taking God at his word. And brothers and sisters, this is crucial because in our suffering, we want God to remove us from the suffering. And God didn't promise that, but he did promise to reveal himself to us and give us the faith to walk through it. And so we need to, to walk by faith, taking God, at, taking God at his word. See here, the depth of your faith will only go as deep as your knowledge of God and the word. That's why we're turning to the scriptures. That's where the psalmist goes, because the depth of your faith will only go as deep as your knowledge of God based in this book. And if you don't have a deep knowledge of God based in this book, when life gets hard, you're jumping ship. You're gonna be like the person that says, God, I tried you, you blew it. All right, trying God is not like I go to the store and try on shoes. You know, I go in, pick my favorite pair of kicks, put them on, and I'm like, oh, I tried them for a few days, I'm returning them. Didn't work, didn't do it for me. But isn't that how people try God? I tried him and he didn't work. That's, that's not trying God. We don't try God. We, we commit and say, Lord, I believe in you. I'm taking this to the bank every time. Your word is true and you are true. And even in the darkest seasons of life, when I have a hard time knowing you're true, I'm gonna hold on to you. 
and you're holding on to me because I'm your child. So God's word is amazing of rich and full blessings that come from knowing God and we've got to know them. Because if we don't, when the trials hit, we will be a mess. So let's look at these blessings of the word that fuel our faith this morning. He starts off, my soul clings to the dust. What's he say next? Give me life according to your word. Suffering sucks out joy, doesn't it? I believe that this is what we in our society today call depression. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about depression. But when you're depressed, the joy of life is gone, isn't it? You're just miserable. It's just, and I've, you know, I've never met a depressed person when I'm doing counseling that hasn't gone through really hard things. Right? You go through hard things. Life is really hard. And you just sucks the life right out of you. Again, this is not a sermon on depression, but I think it serves as a good illustration that in the suffering of life, it sucks the joy, sucks the, the life and energy and purpose and motivation right out of us. And David says, my soul clings to the dust. And he goes one place and one place only. God, give me life according to your word. I can't find it anywhere else. There's no other place to go but you and you alone in the pages of this book. And that's where I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to you every time. Why? Because God is a life-giving God. He's the God who spoke and created life, right? That's what he did. Like from the very first pages of scripture, we see him speaking and life happens. That's awesome. We see then when Jesus comes and he speaks and he restores life, he raises the dead, right? He is a life-giving God. John 17, three, to know me is to have eternal life, like, you want to have life, real life, turn to him. And the sad reality is we look for life in so many other things. Actually believing we'll find it. Actually believing that something else outside of God will give us the life we're looking for. And so we turn to everything, right? For some people, they go to, they go to sports. Sports gives me life. For other people, they go to, to health. Health gives me life. I'm just gonna be as healthy as possible, then I'll live. I'll truly be living if I'm healthy. For others, we go to relationships. Relationships will give me life. If, this is, if I'm just happy here, I'll have life. And the list could go on and on. And here the psalmist pushes us in one direction alone. God gives life. God restores life. And you know, men and women, your creator who made you is the creator who knows what's best for you. And he's the creator who gives you the true meaning of life. Why do you get up in the morning? Is it just for the almighty dollar? Is it just to what? Fill in the blank. But oh, that we'd wake up in the morning and say, Lord, you give life. There's no reason to live apart from you. You alone are my hope and my joy and my salvation today. Whatever life may bring, which will probably stink, you're God and you're good. And I can live for you today. I can walk with you today through whatever comes because you give life. And so the benefit, the first benefit out of the shoot is God's word gives life. And if you don't believe that, I would challenge you to submit yourself to this book and begin saying, God, give me life. But you don't have to notice how he finishes? According to your word. So don't close the book and say, okay, God, give me life. That pastor said you'd do it. Open the book. Devour the book. 
And as you devour the, the word of God, say, God, give me life. God, restore to me the joy of my salvation because I, I need you. And look what he says in verse 26, the, the second benefit of the word. When I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes. Here we see the word, the God of the word listens. Look what he says there. When I told of my ways, this is so interesting because God does not need you to tell him how you're feeling to know how you're feeling, That's right? right? He, he's got it all figured out. He knows your thoughts from afar off before you think them, which is really scary. All right. He knows the, the motivations for why I do what I do. So when I do a good action for a wrong reason, God knows exactly what I'm doing. Like that's how much God knows you and knows me. And just time out here. Let's rejoice that he still loves us. Amen. Right. Because, because he knows all that. And if anybody should kick us to the curb and condemn us for our sin, it's him. But he doesn't. That's the good news of the gospel. He loves us in spite of us, not because of us. All right, back to Psalm, 120, Psalm 119. I told God of my ways. Why is this so crucial? It's because we actually, it's good for our souls to rehearse where we're at before God. We need it. We need to sit before God and say, Lord, I am broken. I don't have it all together. Here's what's happening in my life. I know you know this, but I need to, vocal, I need to vocalize it. I need to actually admit that I don't trust you right now. now. Like God already knows that. It's okay for you to cry out to him. God, I, I'm so broken right now that I, I'm really doubting you. That's what this is. I poured my heart out. I told you of my ways. And I love what he says. You answered me. God doesn't just hear and then be like, yep, peace out. Hope life goes good for you. No, no, he says, he listened and he heard me. He, to hear in the Old Testament is to hear and do something about it. He hears and he does something about it. This is, this is the good news of a God who's full of grace. He loves when we come running to him. Isn't that what a, a parent does? And again, human illustrations of parenting fall apart because none of us are perfect parents. But when that child comes running to you and you're responding as you should, is that not what you desire? You want that child to run to you. I, I, you know, my children are all fairly young. I know many of you have older children, but I know that I'm gonna miss the days when they run from their room to my room and jump in bed, Right? That's going to get weird in 20 years. All right. But right now it's awesome, isn't it? Because they just, it's this desperate, I love you. And I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to run to you. Sometimes you wish they didn't because you're still sleeping, right? And they want to see you. But is, I mean, God is the consummate father. He is, he, there is no lack in him at all. And he wants us in our brokenness to come to him. And he's not like, oh man, Justin, you again. I mean, come on. You've been here every day for 10 years. No, he's like, yes, I'm right here because I care deeply for my own. And so come running to me. And brothers and sisters, yet again, we should just take a moment and respond with, with heartfelt worship that the God who knows us so intimately and knows the filth and yuck of our lives is the God who hears us and answers us. That, that should not be casual theology. 
That should not be like, oh, that's cool. That should be like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, I don't even like to think about all the yuck of my life. And he knows it from beginning to end. And he still hears me when I come to him. He still responds to me when I run to him. Oh, he is good. Oh, he is good. I told him my ways and God, you answered me. And I find it encouraging here that he actually doesn't tell us how God answered him because we might box God in. He just says, I ran to him and he answered me. And he will do the same for us. We run to him and he answers us. And the psalm actually reveals many of the ways in which he answers his children. Look at how it continues. Not only does God listen, but God, the word of God instructs. Psalm 119, 26 and 27. I told you my ways, you answered me. What did he say next? Another command, right? The, all these commands. Teach me your ways. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Okay, remember, sorrow, suffering, agony, misery. And in the middle of that, there's this steadfast commitment that needs to know God and walk with God. That's really important that we, we, we remember the context. This isn't a happy-go-lucky time of life. This is a broken time of life and he's still saying, God, I need you. Teach me your ways. I want to walk with you. Do you realize that trials reveal how you train? Bear with me on this. You know, in the running world, those who train the hardest compete the best. Okay, I'm not a real avid runner, actually. I'm kind of a jogger, lightly. Um, but I, I like to read on this kind of stuff occasionally. You've all heard of Hussein Bolt, one of the fastest men that's ever lived. Um, you know, not to gross you out, but you know that he regularly vomits when he trains? He, I mean, he trains that hard. Like daily, it's normal for him to puke when he's done. And you and I are like, ew, who would ever do that? Just dude, just chill out. We just watch him every four years and thinks he's cool on the, on the, in the Olympics, right? But he has lived a life of training so hard that he just smokes everybody. And other, other guys train hard and that guy's just kind of a uniquely gifted human being. But he didn't accidentally get there, right? He, his, his training, nobody sees that part. But the trial, if you bear with my illustration, is kind of like race day. It's when everything you've practiced for years kicks into gear. And you're not thinking about, what do I do in this moment? Because you've done it 100,000 times. And so in that moment, it's exactly what your muscles remember and you kick into gear. And if you've ever been in any athletic thing, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't have to think about what you do, but it's just, how do you do that? I don't know. It's just what I do because I've done it over and over and over. What's the point? The point is that that's not that different than your walk with God and when trials come. When you don't run to him as a regular habit of life, guess what? When trials come, you won't run to him. You'll run to everything else. When you don't make it your daily discipline to run to God, God, I need you. Even when life is good, I need you. When life goes south, you're gonna be blaming that God. How dare you let that happen to me? Men and women, when we run to God by grace, diligently, daily, disciplining ourselves to walk with him as our lifelong pattern, when we get to Psalm 119, 25 moments, guess where we're gonna go? <laughs> right to that God and say, oh God, I so badly need you right now. If I have ever need you, I need you today. You see, it's interesting, the psalmist here says, 
God, I w- teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way. He's not going after intellectualism. He's going after, I need to know God and I want to walk in his way. Because isn't that what trials do? They derail you. They send you off course. And he goes, okay, God, there is a way and it is your way. I'm not interested in theoretical knowledge right now. I need to know you and how to walk with you and make it clear. Because don't trials muddy the waters? I don't know what the right answer is right now. I don't know what to to do right now. God, teach me your way. Make it clear that I would walk with you. And he, he then says, and it, God, when you do that, I will meditate. Remember the word meditate? Not Eastern mystic, you know, thumbs up in the air, okay? Not clearing your mind of all truth. Filling your mind with God's truth and keeping it there. Right? I will meditate on you and your wondrous works. I looked up wondrous works. It's really interesting. It's used continuously for the character of God and what he does. It's not ever used of a human being. I don't do wondrous works. God does. And he here says, God, when, when you show me, when you teach me, when you make me understand, I'm going to purpose in my mind to think on your awesome deeds, your character and your works. I'm going to stick my mind there and I'm not going anywhere else. God is my meditation. God is my consuming thought, not my trial, not my suffering. God, you're greater. God, you're better. I'm going to stick to you. My dad, growing up, had an illustration that you're going to hear me use a lot. But it's, it helped me think about trials. He said, Justin, make, take like this. Here's your fist. He would say, now take your fist and put your fist right in front of your eyeballs. What do you see? Dad, I, I see my fist. <laughs> okay, now Justin... Take your fist and move it out just a little bit. Just do a little bit. What do you see? I see my fist. I see other things though now. Move it out farther. What do you see? I mean, I still see my fist, but I see everything else. So Justin, that's, that's kind of like our trials when we choose to meditate on God. If we don't meditate on God, we're like this. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not minimizing the reality of your trial. But as you choose to say, I'm going to meditate on your wondrous works, it begins to move a little bit farther back. And you're no longer just consumed with, I can't see anything but my trial. And you're saying this morning, okay, yeah, um, that, that doesn't work for me. Just try it. Just go to the God of this book and say, Lord, even for an hour, I'm gonna meditate on your wondrous works. I have been consumed by my suffering, but I am going to purpose to meditate on you. Would you help this all-consuming trial to just begin to move? Not, not that it's gone, but I want to think on you. Do you see what I'm saying? That's what we're seeing here. In his trial, if you'll notice, the trial never goes away. But he shifts his focus to a God who does wondrous works, and he can meditate on him. So brothers and sisters, once again, we go somewhere in our suffering. We will go somewhere. And if you don't go to the God of this book, you will go somewhere that promises happiness and produces misery. You will go somewhere that looks glamorous and in the end is death. And there is only, there's only hope in one and it's, it's in the God of this book and we must run to him. So the word of God instructs us in the way that we can walk with him even when we can't make sense of life. 
The fourth thing we see of the benefit of the word is this. The God of the word gives strength. We've already talked about it, but we need to talk about it one more time. My soul melts, puddle of tears, remember sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Trials suck the strength out of life. So we see all over scripture, sorrow just, we just kind of go into this kind of, state of, ugh, I don't know what to do, and we become immobile by sorrow. But God gives strength, abundant strength. I mean, Philippians 4.13, a verse that we know well and we misapply often. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through Christ who strengthens me. That's not a verse for baseball helmets. It's a verse for, I am weary and broken. That, that's the context of Philippians 4. Okay, I'm broken. I'm in prison but by the strength of God that he alone gives, I can endure. That's the point. I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. Or how about Colossians 1.11, being strengthened with all his power, that he powerfully works within me, right? He does the work, it's his power through me. God, I'm running to you, because I don't have it. So we're gonna turn somewhere for strength. Sometimes we go to sleep. I just gonna sleep more. Maybe we go to, to a substance. It's gonna make me happy for at least a few moments. Maybe we go to food. Do you realize we can go to food as our comfort? And that's where we go, just to make us happy, just to give us strength. We can go to relationships for strength. Oh man, my wife, she's my rock. Well, that's a problem because there's only one rock, his name is Jesus. And if your wife is your rock when she fails you, you're gonna be a mess because you put your hope and trust in her. And if your children are your rock, good luck because they can't handle it either. You following me? There's only one who can sustain you and give you strength. His name is Jesus. So we go to him in our suffering. The agony is real when we suffer and the blessings of the word fuel our faith. It's like pouring gasoline on a fire. You ever done that? It's really fun. Um, I'm kind of a pyromaniac, all right? Um, so we used to pile all of our junk in the woods in a big field, all right? And then once a year, you light it on fire. It's awesome. Um, if you can ever witness a giant bonfire, you should go. Um, we, almost, we almost torched ourselves a few times, right? Because you got this can of gas or whatever, and you're trying to like, you know, you're dumb. You're not, you're not thinking about, you could blow you up. And you're putting gas on the fire. And it's like, oh, get out of the way before it burns the knuckle hair off and all that stuff. That's what God's word does to your faith, men and women. You're saying, oh, I just don't have any faith. Try pouring gasoline on a match. It's like, Lord, I believe in you, but you ignore this book. You don't go to him and you're wondering why your faith is just so struggling. Pour the gas on the fire. Open the word of God and say, God, teach me. God, show me yourself. God, do your work in my life. I need you. And all of a sudden that fire begins to grow. And you're like, oh, wow, I get it. Do you know what I say? I didn't say the life gets easier. I said, your faith gets deeper because you know God. That's the point. So in the agony of life, we go to the word and it fuels our faith. Thirdly, this morning, when, the, when sorrow clings, we must cling to the word of God or the God of the word by grace. Number three is the yearning to cling to God by grace. Notice how the last verses finish in verse 19, 29. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you 
enlarge my heart. Here we have this kind of rapid fire, successive commitment. I will, I will, I will. There's this yearning to cling to God and it's all by his grace. It's interesting that instead of excusing sin because of suffering, the, tr- the child of God yearns to walk with God through their suffering. Do you know that we often excuse sin because of suffering? What sins do you excuse when life goes bad? Right? I mean, what do we do? You should really make an inventory of this. It's good to know your own soul. Like, okay, when I don't get what I want, where do I go? Again, you go to binging on TV or you go to a substance or you go to a, just fill in the blank. Where do you go? We all go somewhere. And here the child of God is gonna run to God, clinging to him by grace. Like, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. So first thing we see in verse 29 and 30, and this is huge. Thinking truth is essential to doing truth. I'm gonna say that again. Thinking truth is essential to doing truth. Actions simply reveal your thoughts, never the other way around, ever. I used to say to my mom, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean it. Right, that's the classic kid, I don't want to get in trouble line. I didn't mean it. And she was just so consistent. Yes, you did. (laughs) Because whatever was in your heart came out of your mouth. That's exactly what you meant to do. And we love to have all these phrases. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry you took it that way. Blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, you did it because it was in your heart to do. And we hate to admit that because what comes out of us is simply yuck. And, and here we, thinking truth and doing truth go hand in hand. Living for God, what the Bible calls sanctification, the, pro, the progressive growing, like, growing towards Jesus begins in the mind. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by, don't lie to each other. Nope. Go to church more often. Nope. Read your Bibles more. By the renewing of your mind. You and I do what we do in regards to sin because we have not renewed our mind. You want to change how you live, then change how you think. How does that happen through this book, right? We go to this word. We submit our lives to this word. And God does the radical work of transformation through this book. Thinking truth is essential to living truth. Look at the text here. Verse 29, put false ways far from me. This is the the purposeful removal of everything false. And it's interesting, false ways. Remember that path idea. The way I should go. Put false ways far from me. Why is this so crucial? Just maybe because false ways are all around us. Are they not? The lies of our society, the lies of this world that push us towards false ways. And they were some, some of the same lies, some different that the psalmist was tempted to believe thousands of years ago. And he says, put them away from me. This is actually a prayer. 
we can pray this to God. God, I am in a society that's selling me a load of garbage. Every day, music, TV, conversations in the office, social media, it's, it's lying to me, pushing me down false ways. Help me to walk in your way. Help me to know your way. Because if you don't help me with that, I will go down a false way. And sadly, there are many professing followers of Jesus who are well-intentioned, not even aware they're following false ways. And I don't say that to judge you. I just say that because it's a reality. There are a myriad of false ways and we must plead with God and go to the book and say, Lord, remove false ways from me because we can get so easily sucked into them, right? Satan doesn't stand up and say, hey, everybody, I'm a false way. It actually looks good. It's flavored with God's truth and we're sucked into false ways. So he then, he says, uh, remove from me false ways. But and then in verse 29, he, or 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. So interesting. So the first one is, take away false, way, false ways from me. And the next is, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I love that. You know the word for faithfulness here is, is the word, you ready for this? All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read you a Hebrew word. Hathe, um, ha-me, ha-mena, or hemena, translated into Greek as hamen, and we get the word amen. All right, that was the progression of language. So here, and he says, I wanna keep the way of faithfulness. The word hamena was that everything that's true and then today in church, when we say amen, what you should be saying is, everything that was just said is true, amen. That's what we're saying. We believe it was true. We don't pray amen at the end of a prayer just because there's nothing else to say. We're actually saying, God, I believe that everything I just prayed is true. It's faithful. That's this word. So he says, I am gonna choose the way of complete and total trustworthiness, faithfulness. So put false ways from me. I'm going to choose the way of faithfulness. And then um, in the end of 29, I skipped over it, but go back, right? He says, graciously teach me, graciously teach me your law. This is the most needed thing you and I could ever ask for. The most needed thing. God, reveal yourself to me. And you know what the most gracious thing God could ever do? is reveal himself to you. He, we plead with him to know him. He reveals himself to us by his grace. He did not have to do that. One of the most loving things God did was he gave you a book to know him. Do you know that? This isn't just like some random collection of stories. This is a gift of God's grace to rebellious people so that he could reveal himself to us that we could actually know him because if he had not done that, we could not know him and we would be eternally judged for our sin. So we plead with God by his grace. Don't you love that? Just graciously, graciously teach me. Lord, I've put false ways for me and I wanna follow you. Graciously teach me your law. And when God graciously teaches us, then we will set his ways before us because he is good, he is right, he is true, he is faithful, he is merciful, he is kind, he is loving. And when we know him, guess what? We love walking in his ways. It's like, God, you are good and you are awesome and you are lovely and I can walk in your ways. 
And so I need to ask this morning, how are you and I doing with thinking truth? Do you think truth? Are you, are you the kind of child of God that's saying, oh Lord, oh, I don't want to go down the way, a false way. Are you just kind of like, oh, I have no idea. I'm sure I'm okay. That's not the way we should live our lives. We should live our lives with carefully discerning and say, Lord, is this right? This might look okay, but is it best? Is it right? Is it good? This week I, I read a Christian devotional about the power of positivity. Just think happy thoughts. And you will find yourself in such a better emotional state because you're, the power of positivity, and this was a major Christian devotional. Do you have the ability to read that and say, yeah, I don't think that aligns with scripture. Or can you read that and say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. We need to go to the word of God and be able to say, you know, I'm not saying we should always be negative. Positivity is a good thing. But that's not how we find hope in life. We go to the God of the word and we say, Lord, there is really only one thing truly positive and it's you. Everything else is flawed by sin. I need you. So I can find hope and joy in life because of you. And when somebody says, Justin, why are you always so happy? I can simply say, my God is good. That's it. Not, well, I just work really hard to think positive thoughts for five minutes a day. You tracking with me? It's the God of this book we run to. And we say, I want to walk in your way and I want to be done with all false ways. And it's interesting, he goes on. Not only is thinking truth essential to doing truth, but he finishes with no one will accidentally walk with God. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies. We don't accidentally walk with God ever. Spurgeon said, you will, you will only ever sin without thought, but godliness comes with great thought and great perseverance and great grace. That's it. I mean, isn't, isn't that life? How many times have you sinned only to catch yourself and be like, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Anybody? Ever? It's just me. Okay, the rest of you are lying. Okay? I mean, isn't that what we do? We're just like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm doing fine. No, life's all good. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, what am I doing? I shouldn't be doing this. Just without thought. We go down the path of sin, don't we? And it's only by, by dis- discipline and grace we say, okay, no, no, I'm not doing that. And here, I love the word cling, and that's why I used it twice in this big idea this morning, right? Sorrows cling to you. You can't control that. But you can control clinging to the God of the word by grace. And here the psalmist is saying, my, my sorrow hasn't changed, but I am purposing to cling to the God of the word. And so the play on words cannot be missed. It's so key. What comes to your mind when you think of the word cling? I'm kind of a, 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 a football connoisseur. I've never played, but I enjoy it. I enjoy college football. I know some of you have played. Um, but I'm always kind of marveling at a running back who, who can hold that ball so hard that a dozen 300-pound-plus men can run at him, punching at that ball, and it doesn't come loose. Right? You ever, I mean, that's just one of those, like, I'd be like, here you go. Like, you want it? It's yours, man. Like, because if it's going to mirror you, you're going to win, I'm done. I'm done. Right? I mean, their grip is profound on that ball. They're clinging to that thing, and we watch, and we're like, oh, what a loser, you fumbled. Yeah, right, you try it. Right? 
I mean, it's just, it's a, they have worked and they've worked out and they've got technique to hold that thing just right so that they're clinging so tight that no matter what hits it, it ain't coming loose. That's what clinging should be like to us in the word. We're holding on so hard to the word that it's like Satan. I got, I'm clinging to the word. I'm clinging to the word. And, and, and no matter what hits me in this life, I'm holding on to the God and the word of God and I'll be all right. By your grace. Not because I'm some superhuman, not because I'm impervious to trials, but because of the word. And you know what's beautiful? You hold on to the God of the word and he holds on to you so much so that when your strength fails, his doesn't. That's the good news of the gospel. So we do not walk with God accidentally, but we cling to his testimonies. Oh, might we be a kind of church that clings to his testimonies. Three ways we can cling to the testimonies. Very simply, be people of the book. Charles Spurgeon said that, this is kind of a strong quote, you ready? Many of our Bibles have enough, enough dust on the cover to simply write, damned. Is that our Bibles? Oh, God forbid that we would love this book and we'd go to this book and we'd read this book and they wouldn't just be a collection on our shelves, but it would be that which we devour because we need God. So we're people of the book and we're committed to believing this book where there's gonna be things you're like, oh man, I don't know, that's tough. But God, you said it, I'm gonna believe it. That's all we need. God, you said it, we're believing it. We're, we are committed to believing the book. And then, brothers and sisters, we're committed to living this book. Oh, might we not be an intellectual church. That's not godliness. Not having the biggest theological head in town, but the most Christ-likeness in our lives. The most loving of others because we've been transformed by the God of this book. And so he says, I will cling. And then he says, in light of living this book, he says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. God graciously works and we joyfully obey. Look at that, how that verse ends. When you enlarge my heart, that's a work of God. That's what he means when he says in verse 26, God answered me. The heart comes alive. That's the idea of enlarging. The heart becomes living. This dead thing towards God is now alive. It was broken by the suffering of life, but God, you... You enlarged it. You made it beat again. Like somebody who might say, oh, I, I wasn't really living until I got married. Now I'm really living. That's kind of silly. But as Christians, we say, oh, man, I was just spinning my wheels, living a worthless life, pursuing vain things. And then God enlarged my heart. And it was like, whoa, everything now makes sense because God did his work. And look at what he says. It's a conditional statement. God, you do your work when you enlarge my heart and I will run. I will run in the way of your commandments. Diligent, joyful obedience because God is good and his way is best. And notice that his suffering hasn't changed. That's what I love about this, this text. He's not like, oh, great God, I'm happy now. No, no, I'm in the midst of, of the agony and suffering of clinging to the dust and my soul melting away, but I can run after you. I can run after you. This is the idea of you set your face to something and you're not gonna look back. 
You know, uh, I used to ride a lot of horses and when you ride horses and they see the barn, you've heard the phrase, the horse to the barn or a horse seeing the barn. It's pretty scary actually, like terrifying because the horse sees the barn and takes off and literally takes off and doesn't stop until it gets in its stall. I mean, it'll knock you right off and you're like, oh, and so you're just holding on for dear life. Men and women, that is us with God and the word of God. We're like a horse to the barn. We're like, I'm gonna run after him no matter what. I ain't stopping no matter what. I'm gonna pursue him no matter what comes my way. If life stinks, I'm pursuing him. If life is good, I'm pursuing him. I'm walking with God by faith. I'm holding on to him by faith, even if I can't see how it's all gonna work out. Because see, we lie to ourselves. God, I'll just believe in you if you show me what's happening. That's not faith. Faith is God, I can't see it, but I'm gonna hold on to you and I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna finish with a, a story of some of my friends this week. On Wednesday night, we prayed for a couple, um, some friends of Caitlin and I's who, who they had a baby born the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Um, and this child died Friday. Um, the child had major heart complications, lung diseases, and, and they fought through and multiple surgeries and the child didn't make it. And so, so we were praying for these friends and texting with them and, and the child died at three, I think 3.45 on Friday. And I texted my friend actually, not even aware that his child had died. And I just said, hey, I love you. And I prayed for him in a text. And then about 9.30 last night, I get this, no, 9.30 Friday night, I get, this, I get a text with a song. And here's the words to the song. Still, my soul be still. And do not fear the winds of change may rage tomorrow. God is at your side. No longer dread the fires of unexpected sorrow. God, you are my God and I will trust you and not be shaken. Lord of peace, renew a steadfast spirit within me to rest in you alone. Still, my soul be still. Do not be moved by lesser lights and fleeting shadows. Hold on to his ways with a shield of faith against temptation's flaming arrows. God, you are my God and I will trust you and not be shaken. Lord of peace, renew a steadfast spirit within me to rest in you alone. How do you, how do you send that to a friend after your child dies? Because you believe the word of God. And in that moment when everybody says you have the right to be angry and to be bitter and you say, no, no, my soul clings to the dust, but my God is good. Brothers and sisters, if we don't live that way today, we will not live that way when sorrow comes. But if we, by God's grace, through the power of him working through us in the word, when today we walk that way, when those sorrows come, we can say, still my soul be still. God, you are good and you are on my side. Even though I can't tell up from down, you are good. Father, we turn to you this morning and Lord, I just wanna pray this morning because I know that in this room, there are many people hurting, broken by maybe their own sin, maybe by the other people's sin, maybe by, by just the sorrow of living in a fallen world. And this morning, Lord, I pray that you'd minister grace to those who hear your word, that we might say with the prophet of old, your word was found and I did eat it. And Lord, others maybe this morning, they're not, they're not going through the same sorrow but, but they will because life is hard. 
Oh, might we be people who hold on to you when sorrow clings, that we cling to you. We cling to the God of the word by grace and say, Lord, we, we don't know, but we know that you do. And we don't, worry, we don't have to worry about tomorrow because there's a God who's already worried about it for us. And so since you know the end from the beginning, we can just rest in you. Oh, may we be a church who runs to you and rests in you for you are good. And in Christ's name, amen.